Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Begin transmission in three, two, one. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month, I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greer Jackson, and today, what happens when we turn our astronomical instruments back to planet Earth? With the launch of over 12 satellites, Europe's version of GPS, Galileo, will be operational very soon. But why are space scientists getting all excited about it? This month on Naked Astronomy, we're all about the satellites. The first artificial satellite to launch was Sputnik, back in 1957. A polished metal ball, it was just over half a metre in diameter, with four long radio antenna. It looked kind of like a big daddy long legs. These radio antenna beamed down these beep, 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 beeps back to the Russians, letting them know it had reached orbit safely. It was this ball that sparked the space race between the Soviet Union and the Americans. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. And it's arguably why we saw men on the moon a mere 12 years later. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 30 seconds and counting. Fast forward 60 years and guess what? Space is no less political. The launch of the European satellite constellation, Galileo, was largely propelled by our over-reliance on American navigation systems. What would happen if we fell out? They could jam the signal. And because we're so dependent on these satellites, it would render us extremely vulnerable. Think about it. We use this technology every single day like satellite navigation. If you're driving anywhere in your car, you probably use satellite navigation to get where you're going. And then there's the stuff you never even think about. Well, actually, every time you go and get money out of your ATM, you know, all of these are coordinated through satellite-based timing systems. All the scientific and military applications that we touched on before. There are all kinds of political reasons why you might want one. And all this, it's seemingly invisible. But how the heck do you go from concept to orbiting around Earth? Today, the life and death of a satellite and the future of these metallic beasts. Uh, I'm Martin Sweeting. Uh, I'm the uh, executive chairman of SSTL and chairman of the Surrey Space Centre. And when I looked you up on the internet, I have to admit, you have a number of letters after your name. So you've clearly done something quite amazing in terms of industry and space and satellites. 
Well, I mean, first of all, actually, I have to say that I have to own up to saying that I've, I've had a great deal of fun and the letters sort of came afterwards. They weren't, you know, they weren't the objective. I had a lot of fun. What we did, particularly in, in developing small satellites over the last well, 30 years, um, was recognised by people and the letters followed. I met Martin at a conference at the Royal Academy of Engineering earlier this month. Given that SSLT, or Surrey Satellite Technology Limited, have launched more satellites than I can count on my fingers and toes put together, I asked him to talk me through how a satellite is born. Well, I suppose the first thing to start with is, <laughs> fairly obviously, is to decide what it is that you want the satellite to do. So, you know, are you going to take images of the Earth? Are you going to provide communications or whatever? And then you go about deciding how big the satellite is, how much power it's going to need, if it's going to carry instruments, how big are those instruments? And then that gives you an idea of the physical size and the power demands of the satellite. Once you've done that, obviously there's a lot of detail that goes into the design of the spacecraft, both the electronics and the mechanics. Um, and then, of course, having sort of got all that more or less sorted out, you actually have to build it. Um, that's, to some extent, the fun part. Um, the, you know, trying to find neat technical solutions at the right cost to, to meet the objectives is a big challenge. And it's not... It's, 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 you know, yes, space is inhospitable. You can't go up and fix it. But actually, 20 minutes of launch is the most physically demanding because everything shakes and rattles. After that, there's no shaking and rattling whatsoever. It's a very benign environment. But the environment then can suffer temperature extremes if you don't design it right, and that, of course, can play havoc with electronics. And the biggest difference between being in space and on the ground is radiation. Uh, On the ground, we're protected by the atmosphere and by the Earth's magnetic field, and in orbit, we're not. It's a long list of things to think about, but... That's not all. You then need to look for a, basically a rocket that's the right size. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, it's a bit like going down to the shops and you, you have to choose a rocket that's the right size. Yeah, one that's too big will be delightful but much too expensive. One that's too small won't fit. So it's a question of, of optimising that. And then, of course, there's only a limited number of uh, suppliers of rockets and those are all over the world in different countries. So there's a fair amount of international awareness that needs uh, a negotiation that goes into it you have to go through all the contract conditions uh, how do you insure it against failure or falling out of the sky on somebody things like this so there's many many sort of legal and contractual aspects apart from the technology that goes into it and then when you've got your satellite in the sky you can breathe easy right and one of the things that we have to remember is that you can't go up and fix it so if something goes wrong you can't and you get the blue screen of death on your satellite you can't just go around the back and press the reset button you have to find either ways that you can uh, solve it from the ground or you can better switch to redundant or alternative systems which would you know allow you to recover the functionality and control of the satellite sounds like a lot to worry about <laughs> yes and actually that's not the end of the story <laughs> Because once the, once the satellite's launched into space, you have to better communicate with it and control it from the ground. And if you think that satellite in low Earth orbit is travelling at 7 kilometres a second, you see it for 10 minutes and then it disappears. And so you've got, to, you've got to be able to ensure that the satellite operates safely for most of the time when you can't talk to it. You know, just building and launching the satellite is actually only half the story. Controlling it, making sure it's safe getting the best out of it for a long period of time so you get the money back on your investment is just a bigger problem. And how long does this take from conception all the way to 
or getting it safely up into orbit? Well, it depends. Um, government missions, particularly science missions, may take one or two decades. Commercial missions may take four or five years. Uh, some of the latest developments in small satellites have accelerated that, so it could be 12 months or less. So now we're, we're seeing small missions which are going from concept to being ready for launch in, in nine or certainly less than 12 months sometimes, and that's nine months or thereabouts. So the tempo is increasing <coughs> for, for the smaller scale satellites, but for very exotic big satellites, maybe costing a you know, billion dollars or so, typically it's a decade. And Galileo is a good example of this. The first of 30 satellites were catapulted into space back in 2005. Now there are 12 up there. And when the project is complete, there'll be 30 satellites dotted around above Earth, providing us with reliable and very precise location data. Think about centimetre accuracy rather than the metres accuracy we're currently used to. But won't this make us more reliant on global navigation systems? And is that necessarily a good thing? Most people don't realise how dependent they are on space, which is good but also frightening. <laughs> you know, as, as our modern society takes advantage of space, we also become dependent on it. And if we're dependent on it, there are some vulnerabilities. And some of those vulnerabilities are, are fairly obvious. Um, uh, you know, if a satellite fails, then you lose the service. But others are slightly you know, less obvious. One is solar activity. If we get, you know, we haven't had very large solar storms for over 120 years, 150 years now. If we were to get a very large solar storm, that would affect satellite communications and timing and navigation and so on. And of course, there it is vulnerable to uh, uh, you know, malicious cyber uh, intrusions. Um, I mean, not necessarily any more than anything else, but you know, it, it's one of the vulnerabilities. And so if we do lose um, the benefits of space, we will feel it much more now than we would have done 30, 40 years ago. Which is why we want security. The more satellites we have, the safer we are, especially when it comes to navigation. But that's not the only reason why scientists like Dr. Chaz Dixon are particularly excited about its impending initiation. The thing that excites me is that, is that Galileo, which has been coming and coming and coming for so many years, is finally going to be here and we're going to have huge capabilities coming down the pipeline, higher accuracy, higher availability um, through that multi-GNSS world. I'm, I'm a long-term GNSS geek. That's definitely a very geeky thing to look forward to. I'll give you that. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Long-term nav geek. You've made me excited, though, for it. So, uh, here, here. <laughs> I just love it when you meet someone who's enthralled as Chaz about their work. Now, back to Galileo. Why is he so excited? The whole space is growing very much at the moment. So We've had GPS now for 20 years, the American system. Uh, Europe is just about to introduce its own, so that will be declared operational this year. It's not yet complete, but it will be in an operational state, and we'll be able to use that combined with the American GPS system, the Russian GLONASS, and the Chinese are also developing a system called Beidou. So all of that's combining to give more capability to an to a individual user-receiver. Why do we need another one, given that you've just mentioned there are several already there? It's a very complex question. Well, it's an, a, a complex answer to that question, at least. There are all kinds of political reasons why you might want one. 
if we look purely at the engineering side, typically there would be eight or ten GPS satellites visible with an open sky, but with high-rise buildings both sides of a road, GPS receiver in a, in a mobile phone, on a watch, in a car, might only be seeing one or two signals at any given time. And you need three? You need four, typically, to navigate. And there's a complexity if you use multiple systems because they use different time standards. So typically when you add each system, you may need an extra measurement. So with GPS, you need four measurements. If you add GPS to GLONASS, you might need five measurements. If you add Galileo, you might need six measurements. But each of these constellations is typically 30 satellites. The the one or two GPS combined with the one or two GLONASS, one or two Galileo, etc., mean that you have all of the necessary positioning capability in a dense urban environment. It doesn't just mean I can find my way around London easier, as more of us live in cities will also need more frequent trains, as those of us who frequently play a game of sardines on the commute to work will be wanting sooner rather than later. Because railway signalling systems are relatively unsophisticated, it means that for safety reasons, trains have to be well separated. With Galileo, that becomes much less of an issue. And then there's the whole driverless car thing. That becomes exciting into a future where the controller of a vehicle might not be a person because a person will drive their car along a street and not in a field but now if you put a robot in charge of that vehicle you have to give the robot the capability to to know the difference between uh, an urban street and and uh, the countryside and it has to be able to do that in the fog or in the rain or in whatever conditions it is. So that's when GPS becomes really, really important and having that accuracy and that coverage. Exactly so, and that multi-GNSS capability in an urban environment becomes really uh, uh, important. Will you be getting a driverless car? Will you be trusting GNSS? Not this year. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day. This is Naked Astronomy with me, Greer Jackson, and today, the wonderful, whimsical ways of satellites. How do they get up into space, and then how do they come back down? We've been hearing a lot about satellites and navigation, but actually, that's not just what they do. Here's Catherine Mealing-Jones, Head of Growth at the UK Space Agency. Well, I think it's almost impossible for anyone to have a day of life without using satellites in some way. So if you switch on the weather forecast, most of the long-range forecasting has come from satellites. If you're driving anywhere in your car, you probably use satellite navigation to get where you're going. Um, You know, there's all sorts of things that are monitoring our planet. Um, So really, it's, it's an absolutely integral part of everyday life, satellite technology, although most people just don't really think about it, whether it's TV, telephones... All of these things can be delivered via satellite. I guess it's just kind of invisible. It's there, it's omnipotent, but not really that clear. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think in a way, that's what good technology should be. You know, you should have a focus on good technology that you're using without necessarily thinking about how it's delivered. Um, so, yeah, that's absolutely true with the satellite sector, yeah. But the real standout thing for me at this conference is that the satellite industry is booming. Why, when the rest of us have been sat in an economic downturn, has space, possibly one of the most expensive ventures around, been living the dream? Yeah, I mean, it's been a spectacular success story. I mean, the sector's continued to grow at about 8.5% over the last few years, which has really bucked the trend of the economic downturn, which has been fantastic. Um, Turnover annually is just under £12 a year here in the UK. 
But all in all, it's a really good success story and something that should really attract people to to work in the sector and be part of the sector because I think it's set to continue um, that trend of growth. Why do you think it has been so successful? What makes it different from all the other industries? Uh, I think, I mean, we were talking earlier about its applicability to daily life and I think there's something in there. Um, I think there's been some huge investments, for example, for us here in the UK at European level. We've got the Galileo Satellite Navigation Programme and the Copernicus Earth Observation Programme. So there's going to be a, a real wealth of new data and new technology available. Um, And then the other thing is here in the UK, we've just got a lot of people who've got the innovation and the know-how to be able to exploit uh, the technologies. So I think, you know, it's partly as well that we've had a very intensive long-term strategy between government, industry and academia um, who've come together to put together, uh, you know, the actions that we need to really capture the growth in the sector. So the the whole ecosystem around um, space and space infrastructure is really strong here in the UK. And I think that sets us fair for, for growth for you know, the foreseeable future, really. Great news for the industry, then, that satellites will continue to be born and ejected into space. But a satellite can't live forever. What happens when it reaches the end of its life? Well, a satellite that has fascinated me is Prospero. That was the first time Britain had launched a British satellite, 1971, a long time ago. That's Doug Millard. I'm Deputy Keeper, Technologies and Engineering at the Science Museum. Why has this satellite Prospero fascinated me? Well, not just because of some deep-seated British pride or the fact that it has an interesting backstory, but because people who call themselves radio hams are still trying to talk to it some 20 years later after it was decommissioned. But before we get to that, the backstory, because Doug and I, we were standing under a massive rocket called Black Arrow. Its predecessor shot Prospero into space. It would have been tucked away in the tip of this rocket, snug as a bug in a rug, and I was standing underneath it. Well, the thing, when you launch a satellite or a a crew into space, you can't use just one vehicle because as you burn up the the fuel, the propellants, you get uh, an increasing amount of dead weight, if you think about it, which is why we have these uh, rockets in stages. In a way, you have a sequence of rockets, each firing one after the other. So the first stage of Black Arrow, that uses a gamma rocket engine, If you look at the back of it, you can see that each rocket chamber is arranged in pairs and they can swivel uh, and that helps steer the rocket. So it gets it off the ground, starts to steer it. Then the second stage here, that takes over and that takes it a little bit higher still. And then finally the third stage, which is the waxwing rocket just above our heads, that has the satellite attached to it and that gives it the final kick into orbit and uh, mission accomplished. I heard it was a bit of a bumpy ride on the way up there. It wasn't all plain sailing. It was, yes. I mean, the launch was successful, but we can see one of the upper stage rockets called Waxwing and that was a little bit too enthusiastic. Once it had put Prospero into orbit, it carried on firing and um, bashed into it and knocked one of Prospero's radio aerials off. Fortunately, it didn't disrupt the mission, but it, was, um, it didn't shut down quite as quickly as it should have done. And just if we look at Prospero, it does look like a little puck, almost, with is it solar panels all around the outside? Yes, it is. Uh, it's covered in um, fillets, they call them, of 
uh, different surfaces. Most of them are, as you say, solar panels, so they're generating uh, electricity to help power the satellite. But you've also got some experimental surfaces. You can just see a white one there. And they're looking at different types of material uh, and how they behave in space, in the vacuum of space where there's radiation. There's also a little detector called a, a micrometeoroid detector, which just registers all the little bits of dust which are impacting the spacecraft. So it's, it's telling us as much as possible about how a satellite could be launched and survive and also about the, the environment, the space environment. It basically set out to find out as much as it could about what life for a satellite would be like out in space. Up against radiation, vacuums, the cold, the heat, it's not a particularly friendly place to be. And Prospero engineers hoped that once they knew exactly what they were up against, they could build other satellites that would last many, many years. So it was a test satellite. It was telling us the rudiments of how to make a satellite that will last many years. And indeed it has, because it's still up there in space now. It's still up there. It's orbiting uh, almost over the poles. We call it a polar orbit. And it takes about 100 minutes to go around the Earth. But it's, it's still up there. We were communicating with it for many years after its launch. Indeed, a BBC TV series called Coast talked to it back in 2004, but they're not alone. Many people have listened out for its telltale roar, like Greg Roberts. Here's what you might call a radio ham. This is where hobbyists, like Greg, point their radio antennas at the sky and record these weird signals from satellites and then do some detective work to find out which metal lump they'd come from. But sadly, it appears that Prospero is no more. Presumably the the systems have finally succumbed to what is a pretty harsh environment, lots of radiation, Uh, temperature extremes and as far as I know it no longer talks to us. But people did try from UCL I believe a couple of years ago to see if they could communicate with it. Yeah for many years we tried to communicate with it every year on its anniversary and then in 2011 as you say the UCL uh, physics department tried to see whether there was any life there but I'm afraid there was no indication that it was still alive and kicking. Is that a fairly typical story of a satellite then? I mean, that it's still orbiting forever, presumably? Well, you can launch a satellite into a variety of different orbits depending on what sort of mission you want to um, carry out. So, for example, some of the... Let's think of the television satellites, the satellites that beam television direct to our uh, dishes on the side of our houses. They are a long way out. They're 36,000 kilometres out into space. And they're going to stay up there for a long time, you know, thousands of years. Thousands of years? Thousands of years. How can they withstand... I mean, it's freezing cold in space, there's solar wind, there's radiation, there's so much to contend with. Well, once you're moving in space, unless you have something to obstruct your movement, you'll carry on moving almost forever. When you're that far out, there is really no vestiges of the Earth's atmosphere to slow you down. The lower the orbit... Uh, So, for example, Prospero is um, only a few hundred kilometres above the Earth. So towards the end of this century, its orbit will start to decay quite rapidly and eventually it will burn up in the atmosphere, a fiery end. It will burn up. I just presumed we'd start seeing raining satellites at some point. 
Well, Prospero is quite small and uh, none of it will survive. It will just be one um, brief fireball. Satellites are really astonishing. We, we tend to either take them for granted or not really think about them at all, even though we're using sat-navs and uh, DBS broadcasting and so on. But they are made to survive in space without needing a fix. Uh, you can't send round uh, an engineer or a technician to fix a satellite that's gone wrong. You might be able to uh, uh, beam up some new software to, to remedy a fault, but that's not always the case. So when you've invested millions and millions of pounds in a satellite and its launch, you want to make sure it works. So they, they really are remarkable technologies. The problem we face is that because they are so successful and because most of them stay up there a long time, space is getting rather crowded and there is a risk of satellite collision. What would happen in an incident like that? I mean, I'm assuming that all of these orbits are tracked so that hopefully they don't collide, but obviously accidents happen. Accidents do happen. There is a, an unwritten sort of protocol that the orbit is chosen so that no collision can occur. But occasionally these things do happen. There was a collision between a Russian satellite and another one not so many years ago causing a tremendous amount of debris, and that is tracked. And you can, you can keep an eye on something about the size, uh, no smaller than a grapefruit. Fortunately, with that particular collision, most of the junk is now coming back down to Earth and it will burn up in the atmosphere. It would seem, then, that the majority of satellites have a fiery end and, if anything, give us Earthlings a pretty firework display. Unless, that is, they're so far up that they just orbit forever. And then I guess they just never die. In the meantime, thousands more satellites will be launched, including Galileo's. But one thing Martin Sweeting is particularly excited about is what's going to be happening in the next 20 to 30 years. I think it's inevitable that we will see uh, sustained human habitation on the moon. That's probably a good stepping stone for Mars. And what we will see is that we will need the same space infrastructure that we have on Earth placed around the moon and around for Mars. That sounds sort of almost something out of a sci-fi movie. Yes, but there's a lot of things that are in sci-fi movies 20 years ago that we take for granted. I can remember as a kid going to the, you know, the B movies and seeing these black and white science fiction, you know, they're rather old even then, science fiction movies where doors magically opened as you came in and that people had little, what, what now we would look at as a smartphone. And these things were considered absolutely outlandish. And they were very simple things, which now we don't even give a second thought to. So 20 years hence, anything's possible. <laughs> Cheers to that then. Thank you to all my wonderful guests this week, Martin Sweeting, Catherine Mealing-Jones, Chaz Dixon and Doug Millard. And also a big thanks to Greg Roberts and Matthias Bopp, who let me use their recordings of Prospero. You can find more on their website, Sounds From Space. Give it a search, or you can find a link from our website, nakedscientists.com slash astronomy, where you'll also notice that everything from this podcast has been transcribed. Nifty, hey? Finally, all music was created using Duke Deck. Check it out, jukedeck.com. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Greer Jackson. This is Naked Astronomy, and I will be seeing you next month. <laughs>